Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is a recently retired senior agent for the U.S. government with extensive experience in conducting criminal and administrative investigations. With a career spanning over 25 years in law enforcement, she's been the lead investigator on several high-profile cases. She's a sought-after speaker and presenter in corporate, law enforcement, and mental health arenas because she's a relatable badass. She authored numerous mental health and law enforcement-related articles in various publications and professional journals. She's a co-author of the award-winning bestseller, Get Up and Fight, the memoir of Rusty Kanakogi. She's consulted on the television program Law & Order SVU, was a story consultant to a pre-production documentary, and an associate producer for a motion picture. And hey, she even took second place in Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest in Coney Island. And if all this wasn't enough, she's a sixth-degree black belt in judo, a member of the U.S. national judo team, winning medals for the USA in many international competitions, and also a well-respected judo sensei. Please welcome my guest today, Dr. Jean Kanakogi. How you doing today, Jean? Hey, Brian. How are you? I'm doing good. I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. It sounds like we, uh, as we were talking pre-show, we have so much in common and uh, a lot of common goals is to talk about martial arts and mental health. So thanks so much for having me. This is a great platform to do that. Appreciate that. So what we like to do with all my guests, and especially with someone who you had a mother who was heavily involved in judo. So I'm curious how you first got involved. You know, where did that first spark come from for martial arts? Or was it something you even had a choice of? Or was mom just saying you're joining judo? Kind of how, how, how did that start for you? Well, I have to tell you, it, it's a funny story. I was practically born on the mat, and <laughs> that's actually not a joke. My mom, the Rusty Kanakogi, was the mother of women's judo. So here she was teaching judo, and uh, one of her students happens to also have been her OBGYN. She was pregnant with me at the time, and that's when it happened in the middle of, of helping him prepare for his black belt. He had to do his Nagi no Kata. So she's teaching judo, teaching this class, water breaks, everybody goes to the hospital, and she had her doctor with her, so that was easy enough. So now she's in the hospital waiting to give birth, and now we're talking we're talking late 60s. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like today's modern hospital where, you know, you see something and, you know, whatever you see, it's like, okay, mind your business, keep going. <laughs> because as you saw my mother laying there, have counting contractions with her doctor in the room with her, he had his black belt test coming up a couple of days after. So he had to learn that kata. He had to oh. understand it. So what is she doing? She is doing kata form practice judo uchikomi with him 
to get the contractions going, to get me out of there. And at one point, I guess they started grappling and she was choking him because in judo, as you know, there's throws, chokes, arm uh-huh. locks and pins. So she whipped the choke on him just because I guess they were grappling. And it's fun when you're when you're doing like Uchikomi <laughs> and, and you just pull out a choke. So imagine walking by, seeing the doctor in his physician's his physician's jacket, my mother in her uh, hospital gown, choking her doctor <laughs> with his with her big belly, and then my father, yeah, my father comes to the hospital. He was in the middle of teaching another judo class, and my father is Japanese. He's from he's originally from Japan, mm-hmm. so at that time his English was fairly broken. Uh, lo and behold. My mother gives birth. I come out. The doctor comes and sees my father and says, Sensei, congratulations. You have a baby girl. And my father was so excited. He told the doctor, no, not yet. Wife is pregnant. So the communication was hysterical. They all finally got on the same page. The doctor did get his black belt. And that's how I was born into this judo world. Wow. <laughs> That's definitely and, the best intro story I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, coming from a background of my mom being Russian and German, my father being from Japan. So I was born into this street fighting martial arts, uh, Japanese Jewish world. Mm-hmm. And using my skills of martial arts that I learned introducing culture into the philosophy, you know, using the cultural philosophies and then going and talking about this and applying it to everyday life to help me in my career in law enforcement, to help me when I'm helping people in the mental health arena. So this has been such a great ride, but go, you know, digressing for a second Mm -hmm. and going all the way back to when I was born, I pretty much didn't have a choice to be in judo if, uh, if I wanted to see my parents. Because they were both judo instructors. So then when you got to the age where you could have made the decision, what at that point, like what made you want to keep doing it? What made you, what was it about it that made you want to make it part of your life going forward? Well, at that point, when I was able to make my own decisions, I was already in judo for, I mean, seriously practicing and competing in judo probably for about 14 years at that point. Wow. So, so it's almost like a sunk cost, you know, why stop now? And plus one of the beauties of being, I, at the time I was on the junior national team and then subsequently at a very young age, I made the senior national team. I also traveled extensively internationally and nationally. And I picked up friends from all over the world. Nice. And these people are, are lifelong friends that we compete against each other. But yet afterwards, we all go out to dinner. We got to know each other. Uh, back in when I when I traveled internationally, I used to, in my suitcase, carry these mini pocket dictionaries in all different languages, French, Dutch, German, Japanese, <laughs> Spanish, whatever I can carry, because I wanted so badly to communicate with these newfound friends. And we've communicated through judo, whether it be practicing and training together, or whether it be trying to find one word, point, smile, nod our heads a lot, and then speak louder and slower, thinking they would understand it better. <laughs> wow. and, and some of these friends have become, and thank goodness in Europe, they teach English because, uh, you know, sadly, we only learned either Spanish, English, or, or French mm-hmm. in school. 
and not so much where it was the emphasis was put on the importance of it. It was just kind of learn some words. Thank goodness the Europeans and in the Asian countries, they really push English because now we still communicate tremendously. Uh, and these are some of these world champions, these Olympians that I grew up with. And uh, I'm just so fascinated that we forged a lifelong friendship That's all these awesome. years. Wow. Now you mentioned competition. Do you remember your first ever judo tournament? Oh my goodness. Probably not. No, I don't, I don't remember. Let me think. I don't remember my first tournament because there were just so many. I was probably terrified and, you know, terrified for a few reasons. I was never afraid to lose. I think I was more afraid to win because of all the expectations that came with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was always afraid of that. And I wasn't afraid of my uh, opponents. I think it was just the pressure of performing. But later on, I heard a quote, uh, Billie Jean King said it actually, that pressure is a privilege. And I look back in hindsight and I'm thinking, wow, what a privilege I had during competition and when I was called up to the mat to compete. Because not only did I have the pressure representing my dojo, which was uh, called Kyushu Dojo out of Brooklyn, but both of my parents being high-ranking uh, judoka and senseis and very famous uh, judoka and senseis throughout the world. So here I am with the name Tanakogi, and I'm competing against whether it be a local tournament or an international tournament. Uh, fun fact is I didn't get my black belt. I, I think I stayed a brown belt for almost, I think it was like five years or six years. Oh, wow. Because my, my parents held me back. Um, they wanted me to jump through every hoop under the sun. And I think finally it was one international tournament and I was the only brown belt. And and I looked at my mom with this look like, really, really, am I still (laughs) going to be a brown belt here? So when I came back to uh, the States, I took my Kata test and uh, I got my black belt. Nice. But uh, yeah, they, they pushed me. They pushed me hard. Talk about your black belt test. What do you remember about that? Some of the things I've, I've never had a a judo person, you know, talk about what some things they had to do to get their black belt. Well, getting my black belt back in the day, I had to have X amount of points and X amount of wins. Uh, there was also a competition. I think it was an open belt, open weight competition or three different medium, heavy and lightweight competition. And you had to win, I think it was three or four matches and they call it Batsugan, where you just had to win. You had to really be the, the top of your weight group. And then you had to perform kata, uh, nagino kata, and you had to demonstrate superior skills in executing all of these judo techniques. And then I believe I had to do an oral test where I was asked questions to demonstrate, or I was told uh, a throw or a choke or a pin, and I had to demonstrate it. What was really cool is uh, my partner at the time for, uh, for this for these events was the one of the members of the Haitian Olympic judo team. Oh, wow. So he helped. Yeah. So he was my he was my judo uke, my partner, doing all of these and allowing me to execute all of these techniques. That was amazing. And you know, Brian, I, something just came to mind. You asked me about my first competition. Mm-hmm. I can't remember that, but I can remember a few tournaments that actually stood out. Okay. Uh, and because, as I mentioned, my mom was not only a sensei, but she was an international referee. So that means I had a chance when I stepped on the mat of her being my referee. Well, I I think it was at the National Collegiate. It was a gold medal match. 
she was my referee. She was the center referee. So she was the one giving the command of start and stop and get up. And, and believe me, my mom was very, very fair. Uh, one thing I grew up in this world is learning how making sure that you're always fair. Mm-hmm. So I think that was maybe my my sixth match of the day i fought in the heavyweight and in the open division so this was the open division it was a gold medal match i just won the heavyweight division i must have been half asleep i was so tired so i gripped this girl and as we're uh we grab we grab each other's judo geese and we're kind of wrestling around and grip fighting trying to come in on different throws i step out of bounds and that is a penalty mm-hmm. when you step out of bounds. It it wasn't an accident. It wasn't in, in it wasn't while I was trying to execute a throw. It was just sheer. I don't even know where the heck I was. And I stepped out of bounds. So the two referees come in. Uh, the two side referees come in. They meet with the head referee in the middle of the mat and decide if that warrants a penalty. That penalty cost me in it cost me a quarter of a point. So uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it cost me a quarter of a point. So now the score was I was negative a quarter of a point and the and it was still scoreless, but I was now behind as my mother passed me back before she she gave me this sneer that I I don't think I've ever seen. She (laughs) looked at me, made the hand gesture of giving me the penalty. And when she said it, I think she even growled at me. It was <laughs> wow. It was, I was terrified. <laughs> that growl was like, "Don't you dare get off this mat without giving it your best, without doing your absolute best." Wow. And lollygagging and stepping out out of bounds is definitely not your best. You are trained better than that. Let me tell you, I was so scared. I took a grip. As soon as she said Hajime, which is to begin the match again, I was so scared. I gripped this poor opponent of mine. And I say poor opponent of mine because I had put everything I had. I gripped her. I came in to execute a throw 100% full force. And I threw her for a full point. Wow. And I mean, it was literally a storm. It looked like something out of a comic book, just the way it it happened so fast. You grab, execute, I think it was Haragoshi with the Makikomi. So you come in and flip with a Haragoshi and then you land on them. So Makikomi, it actually almost sounds like a piece of squish sushi, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, so when I got up and she awarded me the full point, not only did I get the full point, I got the approval and I got the safety of, I knew I could come home without being screamed at. (laughs) So, so that's a, that's a match. I remember, you know, uh, my mom being the one, the mother of women's judo and Mm -hmm. because of her women's judo is in the Olympics. She took on the international Olympic committee. And some people referred to me as the daughter of women's judo because I was a teenage, I was a young teen and I was actually helping her with her fight and un- and trying to understand as a young teen what discrimination was. What mm. what did that mean? What did it mean to be excluded just because of your gender? So I helped her in her mission, but I didn't realize how much, you know, until hindsight, until I actually wrote the book, Get Up and Fight, because I helped her so much. I had no idea she mortgaged our home. I read so that we could have yeah. Been, wow. yeah, we could have even been been homeless if this if she didn't pull it off. I definitely want to mention this, talk about this, because before we started recording, I, I didn't realize you were on the U.S. national team with former guest of the show, um, Anne-Maria DeMars. So talk a little bit about making that team and, and maybe uh, if you have any cool stories about Anne-Maria. 
Well, I, ha I have to tell you, she is a brilliant, incredible person yes. that not, not only was she one heck of a judo fighter and one heck of a sensei, but, you know, her personality is just, she is a, such a straight shooter, but she's warm and friendly and kind, and she will give you the shirt off her back. Mm -hmm. Being on the team, you know, we always had different teams, and I think the team I'm referring to is when we went to, I think it was Japan. We went to the first Fukuoka Championships in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I, I looked up to her because she was already established. She is, you know, she was a uh, world champion medalist or world champion and, or, and a world champion. I mean, she's just a force not to be reckoned with. And I was just a kid on the team. I, I was probably the youngest one and the, uh, one of the bigger people, she was a lighter weight and she always had a cut weight. And I always felt bad for the lightweights having to cut weight, but what a role model. And then later on, uh, while competing and also during her time as a sensei, she went and got her PhD, which is, I completely get it because I, I've got mine and it, it's grueling. And now what she's doing is incredible by helping people, helping shape young minds and so creative and so brilliant. I need figures and toes to count and she's just a math genius. So uh, I, I have to tell you that I still I, I admire her. I look up to her and I just want to hug her right now while I'm talking about her. <laughs> I loved that interview with her. She's such an amazing person. And yeah, like you said, it's just such a nice and giving person and, and so easy to talk to. And how different is like international, like being on that team, how different is the competition compared to just, you know, a tournament you go to in the U.S.? Is there, is there many differences or is it pretty much the same? Absolute differences. Okay. Uh, one of the things that my mom always encouraged is for us to train with our counterparts. She would arrange guests to come in and visit us uh, all the way. She, we had Ingrid Bergmans from Belgium, the world champion Olympic gold medalist. We had uh, Christina Fiorentini from Italy. We had guests. We had the entire British judo team. We had the entire German judo team. We had the Brazilian judo team. So we had people from all over the world visit us. And then we would also go and train with the Canadians and have big international seminars. So I say this because judo in the United States is definitely not as big as it is in Europe and in Asia. It is gigantic. Um, I, I don't think that there's one Japanese or one French person that went to school that didn't at least take one judo class. Wow. So training with our counterparts and our, our allies and people we would even compete with was just such an amazing experience because you learn the judo and you learn the mentality which is, I think in one of our, our interviews with Ingrid Bergman, somebody had asked, what was it to compete against somebody that, you know, you're friends with? And it really, the Europeans always highlighted that your opponent is truly somebody you bow to, to thank them for helping you become a better judo competitor, a better judo technician. And, and I learned that and I carry, and I learned that because growing up in a, in a Japanese household, we were always taught different philosophies of doing your best, of gratitude, of being thankful, of uh, jitakyoe, which is mutual benefit for everybody, or surieko zenyo, you know, so all, all of that. But the international competition, I learned a lot because 
at stake in the United States, you compete for a gold medal. But in some tournaments, when you were competing against someone, you don't know what the background was that maybe if you were at the time in, in a country that was not westernized, if you did really well representing your country, maybe your family would get better government support. Maybe you would be- get better government support. Uh, I remember competing in Cuba and uh, I knew that I had a lot more uh, that I had. It was literally a fight because the person I was competing against it wasn't just for sport. It was to for a better life. Wow. Because if she won, I'm sure her, her life would be, you know, she would be elevated into the elite athlete status, you know, beating an American or winning a gold medal at the Pan Americans. So there was more at stake. And I think sometimes some of the countries were hungrier to win uh, when I was competing. So my mom instilled that in me and all the people that she trained. If you want that medal, if you want to win, if you want your place, you have to be hungry and not hungry where you're deprived, mm-hmm. but hungry where it's something inside of you. And I always equate it to like a Rocky movie where he was just so hungry. He trained outside the box in, in the most unorthodox ways. And of course, you know, <laughs> as it was pretty funny, my mother watching Rocky movies, she has me like pulling her on a bicycle and, and that in Coney Island. So that didn't go really well. Yeah, and I told her, I said, look, I'm going to draw the line at raw eggs, but, you know, <laughs> nice. but, but, but she, but she did have my, me and the other people that she trained and um, like Eve Aronoff Travella, very dear friend of mine on the 88 Olympic team. She trained us in the strangest, most unorthodox ways but it was we had we just did it. We had complete trust in what she wanted us to do. Um, perfect example. We're going to compete at I think it was the National Sports Festival in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the summertime. I think it was in July. Now New York weather versus Louisiana weather in the summer it is completely different. And of course, what did even I know? You know, we're young and we're just training in judo. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody suffered because to get even I ready for that competition. We're in the dojo. My parents shut off the air conditioners, close the doors, turn up the heat. Wow. And this, you know, you talk about hot yoga. This was hot judo. <laughs> our our geese, everybody's geese were so wet from sweat and we were so drenched. But, you know, our skin complexions were great because we just sweat out every toxin that we ever thought about having wow. in our body. But this is how she trained us. This is how my dad and my mom trained us to get ready for different tournaments. You know, when Eva and I got to that sports fest, uh, for, as people who were not natural uh, or not from the hot atmospheres, you know, the Floridians were good, but New York, I mean, that's different weather. We were probably the only two or some of the only two that didn't pass out from that horrible heat Crazy. because we were acclimated. And, you know, an- another thing when we were in England, and we went to go compete at the British Open. Uh, I know that my mom wanted me to acclimate. And so she gets me. And, and this is I'm still late, uh, probably late teens, early 20s. And she's got me running around London trying to acclimate, get used to the time zone, get used to the, the atmosphere. But meanwhile, it's dark. It's foggy. And I'm telling her, what about Jack the Ripper? <laughs> so she you know, I'm I'm telling her, I said, what if we run into Jack the Ripper? So, you know, she tells me, good, choke him out, throw him and put an on bar on him. You'll be fine. Nice. That's awesome. 
So, I mean, some, some of these places, it was so great to have her as my coach and as my mom, you know, at the same time. And, and of course, sometimes it would be t- difficult because I'd want to be, you know, a kid and she'd feed me, you know, Jewish mom, feed, feed your kids. And then she looks at me, what are you going to eat that for? You got a training in an hour. Stop it. Give me the food. <laughs> and I'm, st- I'm sitting there like salivating, like, mom, give me my food. Wow. That's cool. So you've talked about, you know, teaching a lot and your mom was a great teacher. When, when did teaching become part of your life? Like what, what belt level and what age when you started teaching? I started teaching young. Uh, One of the things that my mom also did to train us is have, uh, have a couple of her students, myself included, come and teach. She used to teach a lot at the private schools. Mm. A lot of the private schools in Brooklyn and Manhattan, especially, and, te- and, and as a program. So she would have us come and practice with the beginners and help teach them. So grooming us as teachers as well. So I would say late teens, early 20s, okay. I started teaching the young kids at summer camp. And I started teaching them in some of the private schools at summer camp. What was really great, and this, again, goes out to that training outside the box uh, mm-hmm. mentality, is as a martial artist, if you're advanced, if you're finessed in your technique, and you are training with another person who is finessed in their technique, who is advanced in their skills, then it's wonderful. It's fine. It's not awkward. How about this? Working with an absolute brand new beginner that has three left feet no sense of balance and will kick you in the shins every time they try to execute a a throw. That's where you learn. You learn from the beginners. Mm -hmm. So as you're teaching these beginners to find their footing, pun intended, they're also so awkward. You have to use your balance and really assert your skills to help them along. At the same time, you're getting better. And then you you truly thank these beginners, these three-footed beginners that shin kickers, because they're helping you be a better you as you're helping them be a better them. Nice. So I started teaching early on and I saw that. And you know one, one other thing that I absolutely loved about teaching and do love about teaching, mm-hmm. especially a young person, and, and I picked this up from my mom because my mom used to get be thrilled and feel so rewarded when she would empower a young person or any person that she was teaching who thought they couldn't do something and then saw them accomplish what they thought they couldn't do and have that look of, oh my goodness, I just did this. Well, that's also what I derive from the teaching, giving people skills and a skill set and the confidence and then looking at that aha moment, seeing when they've actually done something and say, wow, I can do this. That's and that's awesome. what's great about judo because you can modify any technique and anybody can do judo. Mm-hmm. You don't have to compete internationally. You don't have to even compete. You could just do it for sport. You could do it for fun and you could do it at any age. One of my really good friends in Japan, uh, she is a doctor of nursing and a professor of nursing and a nurse in Japan at uh, one of the major universities. She was introduced by one of her friends in Komamoto Kyushu to judo. How she was introduced is there's a book called Yawara no Engine, which is the Japanese version of my mom's life story written in Japanese, only in Japanese. Wow. And he gave, he gave her the book. Now, this man, Victor Itsakusu, 
he is also a he's a sambo champion a well-respected sensei and he and his students go and clean my mother's gravesite in Kumamoto, Japan, where her ashes are interred in the samurai gravesite. Wow. So, and, and I'll get back to that in a second, but he gave the book to his friend Asako. Asako read it, and she was so inspired by Rusty and her tenacity and, and her fight for equality. At 54 years old, she started judo. Nice. And it's great because at that age, your body gets into the motion of learning how to fall, learning movement, being aware of yourself. And what's really cool is now here we are uh, three years later, she's got her black belt in Japan and she lives in Japan Mm -hmm. and she just competed in a uh, international veterans competition for people in her age group. And the fact that uh, at 56 years old, she's doing this. This is amazing. And one of her friends is an 80-year-old man doing this. Wow. See, Yeah. That's funny because my mom actually, I got my mom to join in her 40s. She joined um, Taekwondo and got her black belt. And the reason I got her to join is because she saw we had a 73-year-old woman who was testing for her black belt. My mom saw her and she's like, well, she can do it. I can do it. So (laughs) never too old. (laughs) Never too old to do martial arts. (laughs) That's so true. And, you know, like I said, I'll get back to. So in Komomoto Kyushu at the Ankokoji Cemetery, there is a gravesite uh, designated for the Kanakoji family, which the lineage is of samurai lineage. Mm-hmm. So digressing, my great, 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 et cetera, et cetera, grandfather was Jokushin Kanakoji, who had Kanakoji Castle in the 1400s which is in Kumamoto Kyushu. And he essentially saved the town from a flood and his horse is very famous there. And um, our family has a cave where the Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi was written. He sat on the rock in the cave of my family. So just a little bit of Kanakogi family history. That's awesome. So we have a samurai gravesite and the elders uh, wanted my mother's ashes interred there. And uh, the epithet is written... Rusty Kanakogi, American Samurai. So her ashes are interred there. And these young girls from Chuo High School in Kumamoto, along with Asako and along with Victor, go and clean the gravesite. They bring her coffee and offerings and uh, very ceremonious. Uh, It's just so beautiful. When I see these young high school judo females standing there bowing and praying, I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, that is so moving because of all the efforts that my mom did, all the sacrifices that she did, they have a chance to become Olympians. That's awesome. So it, it's, just, it, it, it's just so touching and so moving. And, and that really inspires me to keep going, to teach judo, to uh, stay in shape and really carry on Rusty's story as, as well as my own. Nice. So well, I definitely want to get to the book, but first you, 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 we talked about teaching. Think back to when you were a teenager to now. What has changed the most about your teaching style over the years? I think over the years, I've calmed down a little bit. <laughs> okay. So, 
ba- back then I wanted to get all my students ready and then just compete and then just fight each one of them. So one of the things that I used to do, which was great, is once my students learned how to fall and once they had some techniques, I would line all of my students up, especially, you know, at the, at the summer camps. And it was fun. It, we have something called Randuri, which is form practice, but it's like a free fighting, you know, not to hurt each other, but just to really learn and mm-hmm. practice your skill set. So I would line everybody up and I would go start with the strongest first, uh, whether it be boys or girls, and then do a two minute match with each one. Because this way I could practice my skills, they could practice theirs. I don't do that any longer. Not, okay. not that, so that's why I say I calm down. <laughs> I, I don't think anything really has changed other than that okay. because the basics, you have to get all the way down to the substrate. You have to do the absolute basic skills and have the patience to keep doing it. Everybody wants to learn judo and okay, when can I throw someone? When can I get thrown? But before you even do that, you have to learn where your feet are, where your hands are, where your head is. A lot of people are so disconnected from their own body, from their own awareness. That's step one. Learn who you are and where you are. The next step is let's learn some body movement. Let's learn how to fall down. And that probably could take a week or two weeks to even get that. And that's repetitive practice, nonstop constant practice. You don't just learn how to fall once and think you got it. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is in that split second situation, if you don't know how to fall, you're not going to think. You have zero time to think. It's either your body is going to react or it's not going to react. So I really like to instill in my students, anybody that I teach is how to fall. Once you learn how to fall, it's easier to learn how to fight. Nice. Because if you don't learn how to fall before you learn how to fight, then you're going to be so worried about falling. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I, I, I took right? a, a keto for six months when I was in college. And I think the first three months, all we did was learn how to fall, which was so important and so helpful. So I definitely it get that. Is. And that's great for any age because, you know, you have to, you have to protect your head mm-hmm. and want, you know, if you could protect that melon from hitting the ground, then everything else can heal a little, a lot easier. You could always heal a hand, heal a scrape, heal a twisted ankle. But if you hit that head, sometimes there, there's no there's no second chance to that. Definitely. So that is so important. And matter of fact, uh, my friend Eve, who was on the Olympic team for 88, uh, she actually teaches uh, senior citizens falling for seniors. Oh, and cool. she started a, progr- a program to help senior citizens learn how to fall, uh, which probably saved a few lives, hips, ankles, oh, arms, shoulders. So So that is so important. And that's really the only thing that that changes, Brian. Everything else is, uh, I think I teach now more philosophy and mindset as well than I did when I was younger and still competing. Nice. So I definitely want to get into the book now. Now, First of all, where did the idea from the book come? Was it your idea? Was it your mom's idea? And and just talk about that, that process and kind of what it was like writing that book with your mom. Well, it was my mom's idea, and that was back in, I think, 2004, 2005. Okay. So she said, listen, I, I need to get my story out. She started putting together a couple of chapters and she would send them to me and I would just st- tighten up the English a little bit and say, no, mom, you can't use that word. So <laughs> we'd go back and forth and, and then we would joke because uh, being in law enforcement, I used to joke around and say, all right, send it to me. Let me see if the statute of limitations expired before you put that in print. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know, she was, she was a street gang leader and she did, she did a couple of things and, and did a little time in, in the can. 
So we wanted to make, you know, so I would kind of just scrub it for that and, and take a look. And nice. actually nothing had to be edited for, for any <laughs> well, of that content. And then she said, okay, well, I want to do this. So she would go and she would work with different writers. And she said, you know, the problem is every time I try to work with a writer, they can't capture my voice. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, so many writers that were so good, they couldn't capture the Brooklyn Yiddish judo words and say it in her voice. And she wanted to tell her story in her voice. And she said, the problem is they were either trying to make it too fluffy, too dramatic, too romantic. And she's like, nobody is getting it. And she was so frustrated. She says, you know what? Let's do this. You and I, we could do this. And I said, well, mom, I, you know, I have a full-time job. I'm a federal agent. She goes, so what? You could do this. So, <laughs> so we would go through chapter by chapter. She would type up a couple of chapters. Then I would come back to her and, and uh, rewrite it with her. And then she would talk, she would dictate some of her story to me. I would write it down. I would put it into a, uh, in a storytelling and we were and capturing her voice. So then she got sick in 2007 with multiple myeloma. She was diagnosed with that. And it was a two year battle, um, radiation, chemotherapy, um, dialysis. Mm -hmm. I mean, this woman fought, I, I can't believe for two years she fought to stay alive. Wow. Uh, so we ha we tabled that whole project. And one day we were sitting in the living room and uh, this was closer towards the end of her life. And I asked her, I said, you know, mom, we know what the reality that we're facing. What do you want me to do in your absence? What do you want me to continue? She looked at me with a straight face and she said everything. <laughs> I said, OK, wait. Now, you do realize I have to go catch bad guys here and there. You know, you do realize I have a big caseload. She said, you could do it. I said, okay, well, how about this? We pick and choose. She goes, I want you to finish that book. My story needs to get out. I need it in my voice. I said, okay. Uh, I said, well, what do you want me to change? I said, you know, there's some things in there that you're pretty much calling people out. She goes, absolutely nothing. You cannot sugarcoat history unless you want that bad history to continue, perpetuate, and um, to repeat itself. So I said, okay, well, we're going to get, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to change any of the, I'm not going to change any of this. I'm going to put your account into what happened. And she calls out the discriminators. She calls out the people who are against women's judo and she calls out the people who uh, were 100% against her, but she also thanked a lot of people that supported her and people she didn't even expect that was going to support her. She thanked, and I didn't change a thing. I, um, Obviously, you know, I, I rewrote a lot of it, but it's it's a gigantic book. It's like 410 pages with with wow. photos because nothing is better than a book full of photos to really nail home the point. Mm -hmm. And not only that, it's 410 pages. You could pick it up and use it as a weapon. It could probably stop a short <laughs> knife nice. and you can exercise with it, too. You, you could do isometric exercises with it. I, I, you know, I implore people with this book, hold it, hold it out in front of you, count to 15 seconds and put it down. Guaranteed your shoulders will be stronger in a month. So <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so this book is the first version of, of, of course, I'm going to shorten it just to make it an easier read. But I kept everything in there because that was one of my promises to my mom mm -hmm. on that day. Uh, two other promises was to finish my PhD in psychology, which was also very grueling, but I did. And the third was to always look out for my dad and take care of him. Nice. 
So I have been, uh, those promises are a continuous promise that I will always, uh, you know, your word is what you have. That's cool. So did you get to go with your mom to the 88 Olympics? Did you get to experience that with her? I did not. I blew out my knee right before. Yes, I know. It, It was so bittersweet because I was so happy about her fight mm-hmm. finally coming uh, true story full circle into fruition as the olympic coach and there i am looking at this gigantic scar on my knee because my my kneecap rode all the way up into my upper thigh mm-hmm. and so yeah so um i had to have a lot of knee surgery I and mean, subsequently I've, I've gotten the knee replaced because it just can't, couldn't take any more abuse yep. but uh it was so bittersweet i was so happy at the same time the dichotomy is I was so sad yeah. because I was training my guts out to get there and I was so sad, but I was so happy for the members of the team that were there. I was so, I was thrilled to see that, uh, the, these three women represented America for the first time. All of, I was thrilled to see all of the women there because these are the people that I knew growing up in, internationally and seeing them have a chance to be in the Olympics all because of my mom. That's awesome. Uh, one of you know, it's highlighted, it's chronicled in the book on her fight to get women's judo into the Olympics, mm-hmm. and it's chronicled on uh, the hoops that she had to jump through. You know, renting out Madison Square Garden yeah. to the first women's world judo championships, and mortgaging our home to do it, and literally begging, borrowing, and stealing to to get this done. So that's all chronicled, and it's just the authenticity is amazing from our logo. There were no women judo logos for judo. You know, there, it wasn't like today where you could just go in, into one of the logo creators. There was nothing out there. Everything that was out there were only men throwing men. So she had a logo created from scratch, which was two of her students throwing each other and one of her students taking the photograph. So the actual logo is an authentic judo throw of two women throwing each other. That's so awesome. that's also, yeah, so that, you know, it's these little things that are chronicled in, in the book. And by the way, you can get it at either rustykanakogi.com or um, drgene007.com. Okay. And I'll put links for both of those definitely out there okay. so people can check that out because I'm, I'm going to be ordering it myself. That's actually kind of cool. Oh, it's, fantastic. I, I'm way behind. I used to read a book a week and ever since I started the podcast, I've just fallen behind on my reading so much, but I've. I probably have about seven martial arts books that I've gotten from different guests and uh, ordered because they were on here and stuff. And I need to, I need to get back into reading a little more, so a little more free time. <laughs> I will guarantee you will be inspired to get up and fight. And, and how, the, by the way, how the name came up, get up and fight. Mm-hmm. That's something that Rusty used to say to me all the time. Get up and fight. Let's go. Come on, get up and fight. What's wrong with you? Get up and fight. Nice. Heavy Brooklyn accent saying it too. So I had I had to use the Brooklyn accent. That's so cool. So I, I want to know now your your actual career law. So how do you think over your twenty five year career in law enforcement? How do you think judo and your judo training helped you in that career? Well, the judo training totally helped me in the career. From the beginning, when I was in the academy, it, we obviously had to do tactics and defensive and offensive tactics and control tactics. I remember that all the way back in the academy, there was this, uh, I, I call it kind of ridiculous uh, drill that they used to call jam and walk up to somebody and place somebody under arrest. But nonetheless, we also had weapon retention drills. And I recall 
that my judo training, when we were doing weapon retention drills, which means you, you have to protect your firearm while somebody's trying to take it from you, a lot of people were very discombobulated trying to fight to keep their weapon at the same time as, as engaging in a fight. With the judo skills, my body movement and how to move truly helped me with those skills. It also helped me try to help my classmates because then we would team up and uh, you would have two people trying to grab your weapon. At the same time, you would have to fight those two people off. And it really helped me help my classmates become better at their skills and drills. The judo training also had me with the mindset of never give up. Mm -hmm. So that was huge. Um, Furthering on into my training, I became a controlled defensive tactics instructor. And I was one of two females in the class. It was it was all male dominated and all guys that were just big, burly fighting type of guys. And the first day, we I think it was a free practice or a free engagement where you were doing weapon retention drills and takedowns. And one of the, the other female in the class got hurt. So she had to go home. So I ended up in uh, this very long, I think it was a three-week course with all guys. And we used everything from shock knife training to uh, all types of physical training. And um, if it was not for my judo skills, I probably would have had a harder time. But the takedowns uh, all came natural to me. The fighting through things all came natural to me. And I think that, um, that really helped. And then one of the really great things about my judo training throughout my law enforcement career is my use of force. Mm-hmm. I knew for a fact that I did not have to use any amount of force more than what was warranted to affect whatever I was trying to do. I knew that I had the skill set that I didn't have to use. So there was no compensation. There was nothing excessive on what I had to do because I knew that I could just tap into my skill set toolbox if I needed it, which was great because if I needed to put hands on someone, I can use a technique, maybe a joint manipulation, and really de-escalate a situation and get somebody into handcuffs a little bit easier, knowing that I had that judo background, that skill set, and also the philosophy on how to talk to somebody at the same time as getting them into handcuffs. Maybe, you know, I've, I've been known to talk people into their own handcuffs. So, <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a psychologist, too. Yeah. So, you know, I'll talk you into your handcuffs. And <laughs> at the same time, as, as a joint manipulation or maybe an arm bar if needed. So uh, I think that that confidence also has been really phenomenal throughout my career. And that's another reason why I got involved in helping teach judo and judo skills to law enforcement. Because having that confidence, having that hands-on confidence, whether you're standing or whether you're on the ground fighting, it really will help you overall in any given situation. Nice. And then talk a little bit about how did the public speaking become something that you do? Well, you know, I, I have a message. I have I have a couple of messages. And the public, let's see, how did the public, well, the public speaking started a long time ago when I was helping my mom with the uh, getting women's judo into the Olympics and fighting for equality. A couple of times she would just leave me at, to handle her press conferences. So that's how that, that started. Nice. So uh, public speaking, I, I've never been afraid of speaking publicly. And uh, I really enjoy telling stories. I think that learning through narrative and learning through storytelling 
is really something that can help people resonate a positive message. Then for a few years, I was uh, detailed down to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and I would be teaching and giving lectures on any type of behavioral science skill and teaching people interviewing, interrogation, cognitive interviewing, pre-assault indicators of active shooters. And I really, really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed giving people tools that they can take away and that they can better themselves and be a better component to whatever they're doing for their workplace. So then later on, I realized now, you know, I'm speaking a lot about critical incident, stress management, crisis intervention, stress management, resilient skills, uh, you know, how to unravel catastrophizing. So I'm speaking a lot about that on mental health and I'm seeing such a need for on a mental health platform to give this skill set and these tools to our law enforcement officers. So a few years ago, I was appointed the Voluntary Director of Mental Health for the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association. And there's about 30-something thousand members of federal agents all around the country. Because when the pandemic hit, we realized something has to be done. This, the mental health, this is, this is a, a mental health crisis going on, not only just a pandemic, but this mental health crisis, isolation, harm's way, unknown. Uh, we just have to get involved and, and do something. So I always hear somebody should do something. And I've always been that someone to do that something. And part of that is to bridge that gap of discussion and talking about mental health, letting law enforcement officers know that it's okay not to be okay, even if it's temporary. And then we saw that there are laws that were not on the books because peer support has been proven to be so effective for law enforcement officers. But you know what? There were no confidential opportunities. So if a law enforcement officer goes to their peer support person in on a federal level and discusses what's going on in his or her life, that person could that who received the information could possibly be compelled to discuss what was just shared with them. So a law had to be written to give that protection. And Senator Cortez Masto from Nevada initiated that. It's called the Cops Counseling Act, and that's the uh, confidential opportunities for peer support. She came to FLIOA and asked for some help, and FLIOA came to me as their director of mental health, and I helped co-author the mental health language for that bill. Well, subsequently, that bill became was written into law uh, about a year later. So now the feds have that confidential opportunity, and that will trickle down throughout all first responders eventually and throughout all state, local, rural, and tribal. So that's huge. And then uh, recently, another law that I helped uh, work with, it was a bill to include line of duty, uh, died by suicide as a line of duty death. And that was a very difficult one to help write some of the mental health language because Mm -hmm. the first argument was, well, wouldn't this incentivize suicide? And the answer to that is a 100% absolutely not because there are certain things that have to be written and uh, certain, certain checkboxes that have to go, you have to go through. And one of those checkboxes is to see a, see a mental health professional get a diagnosis. When you get that diagnosis, the likelihood that you're going to get help is very high now. Right. So it's actually dissuading suicide and hopefully it's saving lives as well. I saw that that was so important and I speak on these topics. So bridging the gap, smashing the stigma, 
having these conversations is really part of what gives me my purpose, which is to help others to be the best them and talk about different tools they can use, different resilient tools they can use to help them with their mental health, to get away from catastrophizing, to really change their mindset from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And that's what I talk about in my public speaking. I speak about being your best and doing your best and how to get there. I talk about how to approach people and how to have these conversations, how to highlight what your strengths are. I use a lot of tools that uh, I learned through uh, Dr. Martin Seligman's training for authentic happiness. I use a lot of tools that are out there and that are empirically supported because everybody could say, oh, do something and and you should this and you should that and you should this. Well, you know, I always say, Brian, the world is full of should. Mm-hmm. So I like to use empirically supported science-based techniques in my speaking, in my keynote, in my empowerment speaking. And I also talk about Rusty's story about how an ordinary person did extraordinary things and changed the world. I do hope I get to hear you speak someday. That would be awesome. Oh, thank you. So do you, is it ever open to the public type things or is it usually like a private organization brings you in to speak? Both. Both. Okay. I cool. have, I've done national, international, local, uh, you know, even a historical society. So uh, I can actually email you when I think that something's coming up. If I do a webinar or if I do something that's open, I do a lot of law enforcement conferences. I okay. do a lot of non law enforcement conferences. I do come, you know, one of the great things is that my message is not specifically law enforcement. It's right. not specific for women. It really is broad based so that I can help others find their purpose and find, you know, find their footing to really be the best them because I think people have been so oppressed lately with all of the negativity. They really need to see the positivity and really find their way and crawl their way out of that negative hole and find a lot of the positivity. And really it's the basic hierarchy of needs and really come to their self-actualization. So given the tools, when people are given tools and they build it themselves it's so much more rewarding and it will resonate longer than when you just tell them, okay, fill out this form, do this. And all right, you're good. That's it just sounds so inspiring and awesome. I, I, like I said, I truly hope I can hear one of your talks someday. That'd be cool. What is some advice, maybe like one or two tips you'd give someone who is looking to get involved in martial arts for the first time in their life. They know nothing about it. They're just wondering, Hey, what should I look for in an instructor? What are, what are some tips you'd give them? Look for honesty and transparency. Nice. Uh, that that's one huge tip. You know, do your research. Go on the internet. Go on the web. And unfortunately, I, I hate to say this, but you know, go on some of the law enforcement uh, sites and, and check out their history as far as you know. Have they made some major mistakes in their past? Because you know, a lot of people can say, you know, just like in any profession, open a storefront, but do your history. Look at the blogs, look at the online presence. I mean, don't take everybody's word you know, verbatim, but go and do a little bit of a search, whether it be, you know, Google or, or whatever, and do your background and then listen to them when they tell you who they are and what they've done. The other thing that my, I, I don't know what people charge these days, mm-hmm. but make sure it's reasonable because one of the, you know, we've, I've seen through the martial arts schools 
unfortunately, you know, like black belt mills, just like in, in education, there are the degree mills. Mm-hmm. You don't want that false sense of confidence. You don't want to be handed a black belt after, you know, 30 days on the mat and you've paid you know, $19.99 or something. You, you really want the authentic instructor. So look for that. Keep in mind what the price should be for the instruction you're getting. Now, of course, you know, it's nothing, nothing is free and you really right. should pay a good dollar for a good instructor, but make sure they're a good instructor. You know, instructors also, one of a couple of things that are really important, don't only look at their competition record because some instructors may have never competed on a higher level, but they are phenomenal instructors because they've truly studied and they're truly passionate on passing their studies on to the student. Nice. So don't just be so judgmental about, well, you know, you never competed in this, this, and this guy competed in this, this. And here's the other thing. Conversely, if an instructor competed, competed, competed all over the place, they may still not be a fantastic instructor because they competed and they trained themselves and they received their training. So look at that as well. Observe a class or two. Observe how the instructor teaches someone. You know, there's always a hierarchy of instructor to student, but also there's a mutual respect. Make sure you see that mutual respect. There's no berating. There is, uh, you know, conversely, there's no coddling. It's not something that uh, a sport or any martial arts that people should uh, succumb to coddling and and uh, really placating to, well, I don't want to do that. Okay, you don't have to. No, this is what you do, but unless we have to modify it to physically accommodate you or mentally accommodate you, yes. But if it's just, you know, a matter of being a little bit spoiled and saying, well, I don't feel like doing that. It could, could you imagine me telling my parents, I don't want to do 50 push-ups? <laughs> so probably won't go over uh, too but, well. <laughs> but look, look for that, look for that mutual respect and look for that hierarchy with respect. And that's the whole thing. You know, one of the things I love about the Japanese and about judo is, we're always taught to leave someplace better than we found it. I don't know if you saw, but recently at the World Soccer Game, the Japanese fans actually cleaned the stadium. I heard about or, that, Or yeah. their section of the stadium. Did you know that the Japanese soccer team, uh, their locker room was spotless when they left? Wow. And the dojo, our dojo, in any dojo, even the high ranks, uh, the high-ranking black belts, clean the mats and clean the dojo. That's cool. So look for that. Yeah, look for look for that. Make sure they, they lead by example. Okay. Just curious, what are your thoughts and are you a fan of MMA and the UFC? Um, I yeah, Let's see, MMA and UFC and don't forget PFL. Yep. I have to tell you, I, I've learned of PFL because of Kayla Harrison and uh, yes. uh, I, tr- I try to watch all of her matches. I, as, as a human being and as a person, she has the biggest heart. She is just an incredible, incredible person. So I've become a fan of PFC, uh, MMA, and um, the the others. I haven't been really so in tune. Of course, I support and watch Ronda Rousey anytime she fought, mm-hmm. uh, because again, another incredible person. Yes, you know, people only see the persona; they only see the television of who these people are. But I know personally that they are incredible incredibly wonderful, kind, genuine people. Uh, and going back to Kayla, I remember my mom has a uh, an endowment the woman, through the Women's Sports Foundation. There's the Rusty Kanakogi Fund for uh, women in judo. And it's a scholarship that every year we evaluate applications 
and we give up to $5,000 for the, to the recipient. So my mom asked me to be on the committee and uh, I said, okay. So the first year in 2009 was the first year that somebody was to be selected was when the uh, fund was established. My mom was alive at the time uh, because she died in November of 2009. And she said to me, this year we're going to select Kayla Harrison. And I said, who's Kayla Harrison? And my mother looked at me and she said, you'll see. So Kayla was the first recipient of the Rusty Kanakogi training grant. Wow. And when she won that first Olympic gold medal, I, I think I cried from my soul because I could feel heaven shaking with my mom being so proud. That's so awesome. uh, I am a, a big fan of Kayla uh, personally and professionally. She is just an incredible human being. And because of her, I've, I've been following more of the PFL. Nice. I'm actually hoping to get her on the show someday. I know she'll be a little, she's a little busy, but <laughs> fingers crossed someday, maybe. She's extremely busy, but you know, it, it's possible because she's also just a down to earth person. Well, hopefully I can make it happen. All right. Who are three, four, five names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. I would have to say, well, first, my mom, mm -hmm. the mother of women's judo. I would put my dad, who I think is the father of women's judo. Nice. Uh, and, you know, to digress, did you remember the commercial where the karate guy came out and beat up the Samsonite luggage? Yes. Um, that's my dad. Are you serious? So not, not only <laughs> is he a samurai, not only is he a saint, but... He is the Samsonite luggage guy who That's beat awesome. up all the suitcases. That yes, is so cool. yes. And he supported my mom's fight for equality when he was shut out by a lot of his friends saying, Why are you supporting her? What it you know, this this shouldn't be happening. And he stood by her side and, and really fought for equality and for women in judo and has been a, a huge supporter for the martial arts. Uh, he's also a martial artist by uh, by way of kendo, by way of karate, uh, and other disciplines. So he would go up there. I would have to put Kayla Harrison up there nice. because she brought her name and she fought so hard um, and trained her guts out to win the Olympic gold medals to put up there and to make judo more of a household name. So, you know, I'm biased when you say martial arts. I'm a little bit biased towards mm -hmm. judo. I'm going to have to put Kayla up there. Okay. I'm going to have to ask, and, and I don't know if Anne-Maria Anne would be appreciative of being put on a big mountain with her face on a rock, but you know <laughs> what? She is also a pioneer. She should be up there. Not yes. only is she a pioneer, but she continuously helps people. She's continuously making the world a better place. You know, there's no way I can leave Rhonda off Mount Rushmore because Rhonda opened the door. She paved the way. She's a household name. Yep. You know, people know of her. Judo has gotten on the map because of her. You know, she's, she's, I think she took a bronze medal at the Olympics. She's there. You know, her mother, world champion, PhD, like, wow, I'd have to put her up there. I would also ask that Miss Keiko Fukuda be put up there because she is, um, the mother of, they, they called her the mother of judo because of her. She studied under Jigoro Kano. She was a kata expert. She and, and Rusty were at the Kodakon together. Uh, Rusty was more on the combative side. Ms. Fukuda was more on the kata side. 
and she was phenomenal. She was a groundbreaker. So I would ask for her to be put on, on the Mount Rushmore. And I know my dad's the only dude up there right now, but you know what? He's, he, he's been surrounded by strong women all his life. So I'm okay with that. Um, one other person I, I would actually put up there would be uh, Mr. Yamashita. Nice. He was um, one, of, one of the best judo competitors ever in the world, the highest medal, a complete gentleman when he was competing. I would put him up there uh, and, of course, stepping in to run the Japanese Olympic Committee when there were so many problems, including a pandemic, including internal stuff. And he just stepped up and he ran with it. Wow. So I would put him up there and just, you know, bow to each person up there out of respect and out of admiration. You know, I, I bow my head to all of them. That's a great Mount Rushmore. Nice. Got some good answers there. Cool. All right. In all your years, is there one philosophy you've learned that just comes to the top of your list? It's super important. You keep coming back to it. Yes. Uh, I, I would say the judo philosophy of Jita Kyoe, mutual benefit for all. Nice. You don't do for yourself, you do for the greater good. It's part, it should be part of everybody's purpose. You know, if, if this was part of everybody's purpose, the world would be such an amazing place. Mm-hmm. It, it is now, but it would even be better. Jita uh, the mutual benefit for all. This nice. is why you bow to your opponent. We have gratitude instilled with us. It, it's there. I'm thanking you for probably kicking my butt, but mm-hmm. I'm also thanking you for making me a better competitor and ultimately a better person. That's a great answer. All right. And I got a few fun ones to wrap it up. This first one, you can't pick your book. Is there a favorite martial arts book? Is there another one you've read that you just, you recommend to people all the time. You've read it more than once. You really enjoy it. Hmm. A martial arts book. You know, it's so funny when I read books, I don't think of them as whether it be martial arts or whether it be uh, sports. There is, let's see, I know of a book. I forgot the name of the title. It was written by Mr. Inakuma, and I read that several times. It's an old school martial arts book written by Mr. Inakuma from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, um, I think that's the only one that I've read several times because of the philosophies and the and the rudimentary basic skills of original judo from Japan. So, okay, good one. All right, now this one you you. Kind of grew up in the 70s and 80s like I did. Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Were you ever into video games at all? I was not. You okay. know, unfortunately, I think the only video game that I was into at the time uh, was the Atari ping pong. And I can still nice. hear that bleep, 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 <laughs> bleep, because I think that's all we could afford. And then later on, uh, as a special present, we got uh space invaders nice so that, i don't know if that's martial arts but uh and, and i don't know if mario brothers counts because he did all the flips and he and he collected the coins but go. uh you know or donkey kong i think that, i think that, you're my my really second I, I think you're up. my second guest to say pong so <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, it says something i guess <laughs> all right how about a favorite martial arts tv show hmm Kung Fu comes to mind. Okay, the original. Uh, nice. Yeah, the ori- the original Kung Fu comes to mind because it was always somebody fighting for the underdog, and that comes to mind. Of course, I loved growing up the Bruce Lee movies. 
Mm-hmm. And the acrobats, I, you know, you'd, you'd see that. You, I'd sit there Saturday after watching Evan Costello, and then the Bruce Lee movies would come on. And I, I used to love watching that, of course, try to emulate that, broke a few pieces of furniture here and there. <laughs> so I, I, you know, got throwing stars and nice. got them taken away from me by my parents. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just typical typical Brooklyn kid stuff. Okay. But I remember loved watching, was it Keith Carradine in, in the original? Yep, David I, Carradine. Sorry, David Carradine. Yep, yep. yep. I love loved watching that because he was always just fighting for the underdog, fighting for what's right, and standing up to bullies. And that's huge to be able to stand up to bullies. I, I viewed myself subsequently in high school and co- and not not college, but junior high, as the anti-bully nice. because I would I would stand up to the bullies. That's cool. Uh, of course, br- the Brooklyn side of Rusty taught me how. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. How about a favorite martial arts movie? Is there one that stands out? Yes. And this is really off the cuff. The Last Dragon. Oh, okay. It was an 80s-ish yep. movie. Barry Gordy's The I Last think, Dragon. Yes, yes. Yep. And I think Elda Barge sang the theme song. The, um, yep. the theme song. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you why. Because... I love the cute little storyline and, you know, just learning about it and the fortune cookies telling him what, what to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, just a little by way of background, my mom helped with uh, some of the martial arts scenes. Oh, wow. And and at the time, my brother was in it as one of the martial arts background and my friend Gary was in it as one of the martial arts backgrounds. Really? So I, ha- I have to say I'm impartial to that movie. And plus, I just love the music and, and all the 80s looking clothes. That's really cool. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's a classic. That's the one I still have to my daughters through a phase where we're watching a ton of 80s movies together. And that's yeah. one we, we haven't watched that one yet, but we'll have to, she's heard me talk about Bruce Leroy and the Shogun of Harlem a few times. So yes. we'll, 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 we'll definitely have to watch that one. <laughs> that's so cool. All right. Final question. This one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, just overall a favorite movie fight scene. Mm, wow. Favorite movie fight scene. I'm going to, the first thing that comes up to mind is the Rocky movie where Dolph Lundgren hit him and really rang his bell, but he fought with everything he had to get back up and fight because that type of tenacity, that type of hunger, that type of drive and passion is what it is all about. Nice. Rocky four. Such a good movie. One of my favorites. That is so cool. Well, before I let you go, anything else maybe that I didn't didn't ask you or we didn't mention that we want to get out there? And like I said, I'll put links for all your stuff when the show comes out and, and make sure we get, you know, the website and, and the book information out there. And, and But any, anything I forgot to ask about? Uh, well, you, when you introduced me, you introduced me as taking second place in the hot dog eating contest with Nathan. <laughs> That's right. So I should, I, sh- I should really kind of explain myself on that one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rusty did anything she could for publicity for women's judo. Well, we had the German, the young, young women's German judo team visiting us that summer. And she thought it would be phenomenal publicity to put one of the German judo competitors in that contest. And they said, well, how about one of the U.S. competitors? So uh, my mom looked at me. She said, you're going to eat hot dogs on July 4th. I said, okay. <laughs> and at the at the time, one of the women who were the young women that were uh, that was exactly the same age as me, she volunteered from the German team to say, OK, I'll do it. Well, she never even ate a hot dog before in her life. So her name 
Her name is Dr. Birgit Feldon. And I say that with, with such a smile because we are still very good friends nice. and uh, in, in touch constantly. So Birgit and I were entered into this hot dog, Nathan's hot dog eating contest. So we're just kind of two, two teams, uh, two girls just eating a bunch of hot dogs with a bun under a time limit with some seltzer water. And they said, go. So we just looking at each other, kind of giggling, but eating hot dogs. And all of these big men were around us, like shoveling hot dogs. And, and uh, now this is way before the Kobayashi years. Mm-hmm. So they said, time. Well, there it is. Birgit ate 10 hot dogs. I ate nine and a half hot dogs. So <laughs> <laughs> she won first place in the hot dog eating contest. I took second. And what's really funny is she came to visit this past summer. We went to Nathan's. And now here we are way older than when we ate all those hot dogs. Mm-hmm. So I, I bought, I think it was like three or four hot dogs and I had one and I was like, all right, that's enough. I'm going to be burping for three years now. And she ate her hot dog, but there was still one hot dog left. And, and, you know, we ate French fries and everything else. So I was about to go and take everything to the garbage can. And she goes, oh, wait a second. She took the other hot dog, took a bite, a half a, a bite and ate half of that hot dog. And she looked at me, she goes, oh, I win again. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's awesome. So, so now she's come. She's coming back this March, and I'm going to do a rematch. Whether she knows it or not, I'm going to do a rematch. And we may have to use the little hot dogs, but I'm going to get that woman. You'll see. <laughs> so how many total women were in the – was it just you two, or was there more women? It was it? just just us. Okay. That's really cool. So two, two teenage girls winning. And, you know, what's even funnier is, uh, you know, she's Dr. Birgit Feldenham, I'm Dr. Jean Kanakogi. So you can actually say maybe eating Nathan's hot dogs make you smarter. I've watched that on TV a few times with, you know, like Joey Chestnut and Koyat. I'm like, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I could nev- never do that. <laughs> Just crazy. But. Are you kidding? I had, tr- I have trouble eating one and a half hot dogs now. So I, I couldn't even imagine. I could maybe do two, but yeah, that's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to do it in a contest. I we, like at work, my, my full-time job sometimes they've done stuff when they've had like uh they had a watermelon eating contest one time and. They're like, oh, you should have. I'm like, no, I'm not going. And my friend did it. And of course, I'm glad I said no because afterwards, like, oh, and you don't get to use your hands. I'm like, what? <laughs> so it was fun watching oh, as, no. he, as he has his hands behind his back and he's like eating watermelon, just face covered. I'm like, yeah, I'm so glad I said no. He won. So that was wow. good. <laughs> Well, nice. ble- well, bless those food eating com- competitors because that's one competition I could never do again. <laughs> Same. That's crazy. Cool. Well, Gene, I, d- I have to say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. This has been so much fun. You have such an amazing life, an amazing story. I, I, you know, I'm so glad you, the book is out there and people get to hear your mom's story because such an, you know, not, not just for Dudo, just women's sport in general. I mean, she was kind of a paving the way and, and taking down barriers and stuff for all, you know, all women's sports, I think. And just su- such an important story. And I'm, I'm hoping maybe we'll see the movie someday. That'd be kind of cool. Well, stay tuned. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, w- once again, just I thank you for your time. I so appreciate it. And I, I can't wait till we get the episode out there. You got it, Brian. Take good care and great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartists.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists, and we'll see you next week.